A tale of two nationalists, one of whom now despises the other, and probably vice versa, Strelkov and Putin. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So for the first part of this podcast, I want to talk about Igor Sevalodovich Girkin, also more broadly known by his nom de guerre, Strelok or Strelkov, which basically means shooter or gunman. The retired FSB colonel and all-round nationalist volunteer fighter who, by his own account, pulled the trigger on the 2014 war in the Donbass, but is now a particularly fierce critic of both Putin and also his conduct of the current war in Ukraine. Mustachioed, rather quiet and restrained in affect, he very much models himself on the ideal czarist officer. And that's perhaps not totally surprising, considering that this is a man who seems to be committed to trying to restore a Russia that never was. And maybe that's, well, I'm not going to delve too far into his psychology or whatever, but this is a man who was born in 1970 to a military family in Moscow. And for university, he went to the Moscow State Institute of History and Archives. And I think that's quite interesting because history and archives... Now, look, I am an unashamed partisan here. I regard myself as an historian by inclination, even if these days I'm largely a historian of the contemporary world. But nonetheless, my view is that the difference between historians and archivists is that historians, their aim is to understand the past, whereas archivists is to store but also to recreate the past. And I think that's very much where Girkin himself lies. I mean, not least because he is, as is famously known, a military reenactor. He likes to cosplay past wars, and in particular, again, playing the role of a czarist officer, this sort of idealised white office, white, white guard, uh, white Russian officer, you know, sort of the motherland and honour variety. But in fairness, he has, unlike so many who do sort of follow that particular route, actually put his, not just his money, but his body where his mouth is, uh, when he was uh, 22 in 1992, he went to go and serve as a foreign fighter, a volunteer, in the Moldovan Civil War, fighting on behalf of the little breakaway Transnistria region of ethnic Russians. And while he was there, he demonstrated that he wasn't just sort of willing to fight, but he was also quite imaginative, quite daring. Um, his unit, for example, apparently uh, had got hold of a bulldozer which they sort of turned into a kind of improvised tank by sort of welding metal plates to it and so forth. But then they used that bulldozer 
no, no, it's blade at least, to lift up and capture a Moldovan BTR-70 personnel carrier, which they thus were able to control. So his unit also actually managed to get themselves a, a, a proper personnel carrier, a BTR-70. So that's sort of one of these little little snippets that, that tell us something about the fact that this is a man who, for all his incredibly conventional, conservative kind of outlook and, and appearance, is nonetheless fairly competent on the battlefield. From that, he moved to a different battlefield the same year, August of that year. He went to Bosnia, again, fighting as a volunteer on the part of, on the side of the, the Slavs there, accusations that he was involved in war crimes and such like. It was a very, very nasty war, and particularly in light of what happened afterwards, to be honest, those accusations are not necessarily entirely implausible. That's all I can really say. Then after that, he clearly decided he had a taste for it. He came back. He he had been, after all, able to defer his national service because of his university studies. But in fact, he chose to actually do his, his time as a conscript instead. He joined the military in 1993. And then the year after, he actually signed up as a contractnik, a contract serviceman. So that, for example, he served in the ranks during the particularly ghastly and essentially pretty unsuccessful First Chechen War. From that, and I think to a large extent because of his record in service, in 1998 he joined the forces of the, the FSB, the Federal Security Service. And in that capacity he would be operating in Dagestan, for example, in the North Caucasus. He played a part in repulsing a cross-border raid by uh, rebel warlord Shamil Basayev, which in, ma- in many ways really was the, uh, I wouldn't say the trigger, but let's say the excuse for the Second Chechen War. And indeed, he served in the Second Chechen War, where again, he will later on be dogged by allegations of human rights abuses. I'm not honestly convinced that there's been a proper case made for anything like that in the Second War. I think it's just that uh, after a certain point, he has a sort of, shall I say, a retrospective target on his back with people looking for and expecting evidence of, of certain kind of acts. What's also interesting is that same year, he starts writing publicly, particularly for this uh, nationalist uh, magazine, Zavtra. Um, and this becomes a, a regular gig, a side gig, uh, writing. And again, as you'd expect, these the themes tend to be about the importance of struggle against uh, terrorists and other threats to Russia, the need to uphold Russian national values, the the need to uphold Russia's status as a great power and so forth. All the kind of things you'd expect. But the interesting thing is, as I say, is that he's allowed to do that, even though he's serving in relatively secret elements of the FSB's kind of military wing. And again, I think that's because, frankly, what he's saying is in keeping with the views of a lot of people further up as well as further down the chain of command. In 2013, he left the FSB with the rank of colonel, which basically means he had risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel. As as with Putin, again, this is a tale of two colonels in many ways. You you tend to get a one-rank-step bump when you retire. And instead, he went, and this is an interesting sort of shift, to go and become the head of the security service of Konstantin Malafeyev's Marshall Capital investment fund. Now, this is interesting because Konstantin Malafeyev, um, he is another um, outspoken nationalist, but also very, very strong on orthodox faith. 
This is the man who, after all, also runs and bankrolls Tsagrad TV and generally sort of a whole you know, ultra-Orthodox and nationalist media empire. And although it's quite common as a career trajectory for people who have served in the FSB well to then move into the private security sector, it's a chance to make money or at least make legal money rather than just simply relying on blackmail and uh, embezzlement. And it's worth noting, by the way, that whatever else one can say about Strelkov, and, you know, as we'll come to, I mean, in my opinion, he is a war criminal. I mean, again, I'm not a lawyer. This is only my personal opinion. But... But nonetheless, there is no evidence that he personally enriched himself in any of his particular positions. Um, you know, we may despise his values, but one has to recognise that he seems honestly to hold them. Anyway, Malafeyev is, is very keen to use his position and, and his money in support of the kind of initiatives that he thinks are worthwhile. I mean, you'll find him bankrolling all kinds of things in, in the Balkans, for example, and, you know, in this role as, as Malafeyev's head of security, and thus in a way sort of armed right hand, he crops up, Girkin, Threlkov, crops up in 2014 in Crimea, where although he seems to have been there, you might say, on day job, nonetheless he quickly becomes associated with the uh, move to seize the peninsula during the annexation, and he's clearly acting as some kind of, if not proxy, but certainly ally of the Russian forces there. But then, after that, he is then going to move into the Donbass. And here, I think it's important to stress one point, that there are a whole variety of different sources which basically all, even though they come from people, some who are favourable to the Kremlin, critics of the Kremlin, and so forth, there is a general, I would suggest, consensus that Strelkov did not do this under orders, certainly not Kremlin orders. Actually, quite the opposite. I mean, by his own account and by the account of others, he, when he, took, he managed to gather together a force of just over 50 volunteers, not well armed, not well equipped, certainly not well budgeted. And he took them across the border into southeastern Ukraine in order to support or encourage the risings against the new post-revolution of dignity government in Kiev. When he did that, first of all, he switched off his phone precisely because he knew that otherwise he would be given orders to, to come back. And they had to dodge not just Ukrainian, but also Russian border guards when they went in there. You know, this was private enterprise. Now, look, that's not in any way to exonerate the Kremlin for what happened overall. But it does seem to support this notion that what happened at first was, as it were, the Kremlin was just willing to see what played out. It didn't initiate the risings in the Donbass in the main. It was rather choosing not to prevent them. And that, you know, in its view, would give it the option. It could choose to double down. It could choose to pull back. It had that flexibility of manoeuvre. It's a very, very Putin approach to operating. But anyway, what that happened was, I mean, he went in, he was crucial in taking over the town of Slavyansk and sort of encouraging the whole rising, which became this toxic mix of foreign intervention and civil war. And briefly, he was the notional minister of defense of the pseudo-states. He was clearly ruthless. And, you know, he brought in military discipline of a Stalinist variety. And when I say that, I'm not just simply using that as a general epithet. He actually derived them from the Stalin era, World War II military discipline code that was applied to the Soviets. He, for example, had looters shot. He also was responsible 
again more by inaction than action for the shooting down of the MH17 civilian airliner. Again, it's worth stressing, the rebels, when they used their Russian-supplied surface-to-air missile, didn't know they were shooting down a civilian airliner. Girkins himself sent out a crowing tweet about a Ukrainian military aircraft being shot down and sort of keep out of our skies, until he then hurriedly deleted that when it became clear what happened. He was, though, overall quite effective. I think that seems to be the sort of the, the, the general view. Um, he certainly was able to, in the early stages of the war, do more with relatively poorly supported and equipped forces and quite small forces than people might have been able to expect. But the point is, he was there as a believer, unlike so many others who were there as simple political opportunists or just outright mercenaries. He was there for a cause. He had this vision of Novorossiya, New Russia, the idea that actually the parts of Ukraine that he and fellow nationalists believe really are actually part of Russia, which essentially means the Russian-speaking areas, but not entirely, well, that they would be brought under one control and then probably, presumably, sort of joined, joined with Russia. And for a while, for a brief while, the Kremlin decided to go with that, and then, for their own reasons, they decided to go against that. And at that point, Girkin became a problem because, as I say, he was a believer. And so they actually maneuvered his uh, withdrawal in August 2014, in some ways as part of the price, or should I say part of the package for when they also sent in their own regular troops to stiffen the resolve and protect LDNR militia forces and also deliver some, some devastating attacks on Ukrainian government forces. So basically, he was forced out. But again, what's really quite interesting is that he was not then eliminated from the scene. And I don't mean that in the sense of you know, the usual tropes about, oh, he'll be thrown out of a window or poisoned or whatever. No, but they, they, they could have silenced him. He was allowed to remain something of a public figure. And he's a public figure who became increasingly open in his resentment, his bitterness about what had happened, and particularly about Putin, whom he regarded as being irresolute, as talking the language of nationalism, but actually only being interested in his own self-interest. Uh, huh, as if that could be true. And even you know, as of November of 2014, he was already saying, and here's a quote, the existence of the DPR, uh, the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, in the current form is the ulcer that corrodes Russia and Ukraine. And in many ways, look, he's right. I mean, the very crass short-term political de deals that were struck in 2014 ended up lasting all the way through until this terrible invasion of 2022. So he became this uh, you know, fierce critic of Putin's and the regime. He established the Novorossiya movement, which provided continued uh, support for the, the, the pseudo-states and the fighters and so forth. And more generally, he began to become more and more identified with a certain variety of Russian nationalist rhetoric, thought, and even some political mobilisation. And here we come back to the idea of his being a, an archivist and a reenactor, because it is clear that there was a very strong reenactment element here. In 2015, for example, he said, humanity has little experience with democracy, but much experience with monarchy. 
I'm a supporter of the orthodox monarchy. Any authoritarian form of government is optimal for Russia. It fits our culture and economic reality. Well, first of all, there's an interesting point here that the same kind of views that are articulated by some of the most fierce critics of Russia in the West and which are denounced as Russophobic by the Kremlin, which are more or less saying that authoritarianism is somehow encoded within the DNA of Russians, which, for the record, I absolutely and fundamentally disagree with. But nonetheless, the same point of view is actually being put forward by this kind of ultra-Russian nationalist. And that was in 2015. In 2016, he also played a role in the establishment of the OND, the all-Russian nationalist movement. And already by this point, what's interesting is that, yes, he was talking about authoritarianism and monarchy and such like, but in part because of I think, the influences of people around him, people like um, you know, Konstantin Krylov and such like, who were much more thoughtful ideologists of the nationalist movement. And the degree to which he himself had come to realise that he was, as it were, a victim of authoritarianism, of the ability of an uncontrolled state to just simply decide what it wants to do, and if need be, flip policy round on the proverbial dime without any kind of checks and balances. Well, he himself had become a little bit more nuanced. The manifesto of the all-Russian movement says... There can be no glory, no prosperity, no freedom, while citizens' rights may be violated at any time and depend on the whims of the ruler. Yes, and maybe he himself felt that he had experienced the authoritarianism of the whims of the ruler himself. And so the manifesto of this movement very, very firmly and clearly committed itself to the protection of property rights, media freedoms, freedom of speech, and all of them to be protected by a genuinely independent judiciary. I always find this one of the most delightful ironies of all, that you have ultra-nationalists who are in effect, because they feel that this authoritarian state, although it talks the language of nationalism, is actually betraying the interests of their country. Well, the remedy that they find themselves coming up with is essentially constitutional democracy. I mean, it is, it is quite delightful in its own way. And I'm not quite sure that, that Strelkov, who, whatever else one may say about him, he clearly understands some things very well, but I don't really think of him as a deep political philosopher by any means. But anyway, we, we see Strelkov increasingly becoming something of an avatar of this nationalist critique of Putin's. It was particularly visible in 2017 when opposition leader Alexei Navalny chose to actually have a slightly strange and frankly rather dull televised debate encounter call it what you will with Strelkov in what looked like frankly an underground safe house um not because it shows us as some people are still trying to suggest that Navalny is some kind of closet ethno-nationalist fascist or anything like that quite the opposite this was a way in which Navalny was trying to reach out to a different constituency nationalists who nonetheless were nationalists for change and nationalists who in some ways were willing to kind of support the sort of law-based state that he was going to be offering Russians. So again, at this point, Strelkov is not beyond the pale. 
He is someone with whom one can disagree with, but he is regarded as being part of a wider mainstream of, shall we say, Russian opposition politics. Now, things have only sort of increased. Obviously, Navalny is off the scene. Strelkov now, since the February invasion, has become all the more sharp a, a critic of the Kremlin. His social media provides regular and, and, if I'm honest, surprisingly good military analyses of the situation on the ground, even if at times it does tend towards probably an an undue pessimism about Russia's prospects, because ironically enough, you know, even as a patriot, there's probably a part of him that does not want the Kremlin to succeed. But, I mean, again, and I wouldn't want to say that it's the most brilliant writing ever, but compared with so much of the sort of quote-unquote analysis that we get, for example, on Twitter, where someone decides to sort of write another 17-post thread based on what's happened, which is really just simply a cull of four things I read from the newspapers. In this respect, Strelkov clearly has, still has contacts in the LDNR, and he understands you know, a lot of the, sort of the, the fundamentals of warfare. So that's, that's, that's sort of quite, quite interesting in that way. But more to the point, he is also still a really open critic of the government, in in some ways even more so. You know, he calls Putin tongue very, very firmly in cheek, our unique strategic advantage. And Defence Minister Shoigu, he dispensed with at one point by calling him the plywood marshal. And the interesting thing is this, he's clearly getting some traction. His uh, appearances on various uh, videos and such like are getting more and more views. His social media posts are getting more and more reposts. But perhaps most significant, if also hardest to track, is particular analyses, perspectives of his, but also more tellingly particular phrases that are distinctively Strelkovian have begun more and more to crop up in the use by others, particularly if one follows the, you know, frankly often very unpleasant social media channels used by serving and former soldiers, National Guard and the like. I mean, like they mentioned the plywood marshal, um, which is an okay phrase, but nonetheless, again, that has cropped up in a whole variety of other places, which implies, given that I've haven't been able to find any traces of its use before Strelkov used it. That very much implies that people are listening to what he's saying and it's, they're internalising it. Now, how on earth can he get away with doing this, given that we, we know that liberal critics of the war face being excluded, shut down, put in prison or whatever else? Well, of course, I mean, in part, that's the answer is that magic word, L, liberal. I mean, on the one hand, look, Krisha matters, a roof, a protection. And Strelkov, I think, still has a certain Krisha from his time within the FSB, a sense that in some ways he has earned the right to say what he wants to say by being a good soldier, but also the fact that there are many within the FSB who do believe the same things as he does, and they are glad to see someone out there saying things. Secondly, I think there may be an element, and we also see this as one of the reasons why I think a lot of these critical social media channels from within like the National Guard, etc., are allowed to keep running, that there is a perspective that it is better to be able to see what these kind of people are saying openly, rather than to drive them underground, drive them into much, much less controllable uh, channels. And it also becomes a way of almost 
monitoring the temperature of the debate, you know, how annoyed are people. Again, there is actually a certain value in having a little sandbox controlled area where you allow people to vent. But does it mean that he is significant? Not really in and of himself, or at least that, that's my view. I mean, this is not a man, for example, who is especially charismatic. It is not a man who seems to be particularly good in establishing, shall we say, a, a coalition, um, or even, frankly, a team around himself. He is very much, I mean, yes, he has connections with other nationalist figures and so forth, but, but not of the sort that one says that this is a person who is a real uh, catalyst for creating a force. But the point is exactly, I mean, sometimes it's not the individual who does that. Sometimes the individual is simply the, the, the figurehead or even, shall I say, the excuse, the little piece of grit around which something larger can cohere. And I realise as I use that metaphor, I'm really thinking of a pearl in an oyster. And I really wouldn't want to think that we're going to see any pearls being uh, forming around Strelkov. But that sense that, in fact, you know, an individual can, can create something that is rather wider and more sophisticated than themselves. I don't believe, though, that he is going to become that pivotal figure. Much more important, I think, is the degree to which it's worth following Strelkov and a handful of people like him, precisely because they are the voice of a particular wing of Russian politics that otherwise tends to be behind the scenes, behind closed doors, in certain bars, in certain conversations in offices, of this nationalist, zealously nationalist critique of not just the war, but the system behind the war, the corruption, the self-indulgence, the amateurism, the cynicism with which the Putin regime has approached not just Ukraine, but frankly, you know, politics as a whole. And I think that, that really is quite a powerful driver in many ways. We can easily underestimate the degree to which people can just be fed up by that sense of cognitive dissonance, by that sense of something not being what it pretends to be. Now, we know that on the liberal side, the people who you know, will brandish a copy of the Constitution and precisely make the point that this is a regime which ignores the laws and the constitution when it suits them. Or that talks the language of patriotism while its own leaders rob their own country blind. You know, we're familiar with that from the liberal side of things. And it's much of the appeal of someone like Navalny. I mean, he was very, very effect effective in precisely bringing people's attentions to the hypocrisies of the system. Well, look, there is also a, a nationalist critique. And I think it's one that's actually getting stronger during the course of the war. And it's one that obviously you know, has this irony that a maximalist foreign policy, because after all, you know, Strelkov is saying that Russia should be mobilising fully and that Russia should be, if they're going to have fight this war, they should be fighting it properly. And that means a massive offensive with the aim precisely of taking at least the eastern. And when I say east, I don't just simply mean the Donbass. I'm talking about Kiev and eastwards should be Russian. So, you know, this is not in any way a peacenik. But nonetheless, these, to me, rather noxious political ambitions in foreign policy, ironically is, as I said, driving an almost constitutionalist domestic political agenda. 
Now again, constitutionalist does not necessarily mean liberal. It doesn't even necessarily mean all that democratic. But it is that sense that if policy in the hands is in the hands of one man or a handful of people, then that is a dangerous thing for the country. And I think this is something that on some level the Kremlin is aware of. I mean, hence, for example, its move to co-opt nationalists through people like uh, Zakhar Prilepin, the, the writer, the former Amon riot policeman, who then himself went and fought, led a militia unit in, in the war in, in the Donbass. You know, his For Truth movement that ended up merged in with patriots of Russia and um, a just Russia, that's it, sorry, I forgot for a moment. For some strange reason, I didn't associate the word just with this movement. Anyway, you know, this is an attempt, not at the moment very successful, to create some kind of alternative more and more authentic nationalist response to the tired old cliches of the Liberal Democrat Party. And I said, I mean, I don't think it's going to be successful precisely for this issue of authenticity. But so long as Girkin is out there, so long as Girkin is continuing his diatribes against the Kremlin, Firstly, it shows the degree of protection he's got. Secondly, though, it shows actually that this nationalist critique of Putin, however uncomfortable it may be to the Kremlin, is one that they feel they can't just simply try and squelch because they know that within the people on whom they depend the most, the FSB, the police, the military, the National Guard, these are precisely the place where Girkin's words have the most resonance. And it's not, I think, that they want to avoid making a martyr of Girkin himself, though that's a possibility, but it's more that if they turn against him, they risk further alienating this block of the people who, frankly, in the current system, matter. They matter a hell of a lot more than technocrats. They matter certainly a hell of a lot more than oligarchs. These are the people with power. These are the people with, on whom Putin depends. And if anyone, if, 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 if anyone is ever going to bring Putin down, it's going to be these guys. So bizarrely, who knows, maybe in a year's time, I'll be producing a podcast saying how we have to thank Girkin for bringing down Putin. But I'm not holding my breath. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, back in the dim and distant past, in other words, in May, I read out as part of the, the podcast the coda I had written for the translated later editions of my short history of Russia, updating it to consider the war in Ukraine in the context of the themes in the book. Now, I was confidently anticipating being called out for a cheap and cynical bid to fill airtime and plug my book at the same time. But in fact, I was pleasantly surprised by the number of people who responded very positively to it. And also, I've had people who are saying, having noted that there is now also a coda that I wrote for my earlier book, 
we need to talk about Putin, which after all predates both not just the invasion but also Covid, and asking me if I can also read that. Now look, let no one suggest that I would ever pass up a cheap and cynical attempt to sell books. And because my book, We Need to Talk About Putin, is still fab, and you really should go out and buy it if you haven't already, what I'm going to do is read you that coda, and also come back on a, a few points within it that I think, uh, particularly in, well, A, in light of the development since, and B, in light of the fact that, well, there's a limit to what I could squeeze into a very short coda that could be added into the paperback, um, that, you know, still, still are worth saying. So, anyway, coda. We still need to talk about Putin. For me, what really convinced me that we were dealing with a different Putin was the cutaway shot. On 21st February 2022, we were treated to a televised session of the Security Council, an assembly of the most powerful movers and shakers in Putin's court. For once, it was being held in person, and Putin himself was enthroned at a desk, distant from his spy chiefs, ministers and advisers, who sat in seated, separated rows like naughty children in front of the headmaster. In theory, this was a chance for them to brief the president on Russia's escalating confrontation with Ukraine. In practice, it was an exercise in symbolic power and collective incrimination. One by one, they are expected to parrot Putin's own views and support his policies. No divergence from the script was acceptable. Foreign Minister Lavrov tried to avoid directly endorsing the official line. Putin pushed him into it. Chief Negotiator Kozak wanted to express his own views. Putin cut him off. Prime Minister Mishustin wanted to talk about the economy. An obviously bored Putin played with his pen. When Foreign Intelligence Service Director Narishkin became flustered, though, Putin leapt at the opportunity, interrupting, scolding and generally bullying him. At one point, the camera cut to his face and he was smirking with unfeigned pleasure as he humiliated a man who has been one of Putin's loyal soldiers throughout. The exercise of power had become its own end, and the Tsar needed not guidance from his underlings, but their unflinching obedience. Perhaps Putin should have listened more carefully, though. Just three days later, he sent his forces into Ukraine, starting a war that would mobilise not just Ukrainians, but the West. In under two months of fighting, Russia would squander as many men as the Soviet Union lost in ten years fighting in Afghanistan, find itself hit by unprecedented economic sanctions that look set to grind 10-15% to off its GDP in the course of the year, and turn the country into a virtual pariah. Putin seems to have changed since the start of the Covid pandemic. During that time, he was a virtual prisoner within an unprecedented biosecurity bubble. Those who were going to meet him generally had to spend two weeks under guard in a government facility and even then approached the monarch through a corridor fogged with antibacterial spray and bathed in ultraviolet light. His circle contracted virtually to a point. He scarcely travelled in his own country and even his closest allies often saw him just through a video screen. Whether it was because of that, or age, or even, as some have speculated, some serious illness that he's concealing, it looked as if he had become a rather different man, a risk-taker in a hurry. 
Looking more closely, though, it is rather that, like so many ageing autocrats, over time he has become more of a caricature of himself. His invasion, for all that the forces had been built up over the best part of a year, was poorly planned and sprung on most of his commanders and ministers. The judoka had favoured secrecy and the inspiration of the moment over a carefully framed strategy. Furthermore, this was not war the way Russia's generals plan and train to fight, but one that was more of a spezoperatia, a special operation of the sort conducted by the intelligence services. Putin seems genuinely to have believed that this was not going to be a gamble at all. The president turned amateur historian had been writing shoddily researched articles assembling a hodgepodge of cherry-picked incidents and accounts to claim that Ukraine was not a real country, but rather little more than a semi-detached part of Russia. In his mind, this seemed to have meant two things. First of all, that the Ukrainians' desire to move out of Russia's sphere of influence made them not just enemies, but traitors. And to Putin, traitors must always be dealt with quickly and decisively. Secondly, that it would be easy to bring them back into the fold. The non-people of this non-state would hardly resist. Hence, the spezoperatia, based as it was on the assumption that this was not the start of a long war, but a quick and easy act of regime change. Putin presumably meant this to be the capstone of his career. With Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko already dependent on Russia for his political survival, imposing a friendly regime onto Ukraine would effectively bring the lands of the Rus back under Moscow's control. Not a USSR 2.0, nor even a revived Russian Empire, but a deeper fusion of what Putin believes to be really one single people. This would have been that decisive historical legacy he has so long craved. It might even have been a sufficient high point on which he could have considered stepping back from the presidency. He was, of course, utterly and disastrously wrong. The Ukrainians fought with imagination and determination. Russia's invasion strategy, predicated on Putin's false assumptions, led to massive losses. As of writing, there seemed no prospect that its forces can do more than hold the contested southeastern corner of Ukraine, and meanwhile Western sanctions are more damaging than anyone had expected. He was so wrong not because he's insane, but because he was allowed to make seemingly rational decisions based on multiple fundamental misunderstandings of the real situation. Could no one tell him when he was mistaken? Could no one warn him of the risks he was taking? Apparently not. He had surrounded himself with yes-men, fellow hawks and eager mini-me's, all competing to tell him not what he needed to hear, but what he wanted to hear. Many will have known that the boss was getting Ukraine wrong, but when it was clearly something he felt so passionate about, who would have risked their access, their privileges, their position by saying so? Putin has no one else to blame. Indeed, as of writing, he still doesn't seem to have learnt the lesson. A deputy head of the FSB has been arrested, apparently for misleading the president. But how could he have done otherwise? Meanwhile, when Elvira Nabulina, the very able chair at the central bank, told the president plainly that as a result of the invasion, the economy was being flushed down the sewer, Putin simply ended the call. 
The Tsar still doesn't want to hear bad news. Every Russian is having to pay the price, though. As is, it seems increasingly unlikely Putin will feel he can leave the presidency. All the genuine progress, economic, social, even political, made in the early terms of his presidency are being sacrificed on the altar of his war. In many ways, he's dragging Russia back to the Cold War days of the 1970s, as an increasingly ageing leadership presides over a decaying economy and an ever more dissatisfied population is controlled by propaganda and repression. Just as the Soviet system was already dying then, but would take another decade actually to end, Putin's system may well survive as long as Putin himself remains in the Kremlin. Nonetheless, it is also dying. Its creative capacities spent, and all its contradictions and dysfunctions metastasizing like cancers. Even when he is gone, though, we will still need to talk about Putin, if only for a while. He will be a cautionary tale for both Russians and the West, as both think about how they can avoid repeating the same steps that elevated this little grey man to power. But, soon enough, Putin will end up relegated to the history books, just not in the glowing and heroic terms he's always hoped. London, April 2022. So that was the coda, and now let me, in some ways almost as a coda to the coda, just pick up on a few of the points made within it that I'd just like to say a few more bits and pieces. One of the actually questions that a listener asked was, why did Narishkin so badly fluff his lines at that Security Council meeting? Was it that he thought it was something that the purpose was something else? Was it that he was just simply so deeply aware of just how disastrous this could be that he just wasn't able to really sort of go through with it or whatever? Well, look, I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. But I think it does actually speak to this awareness that I think a lot of people did have about the fact that this was going to be a mistake. And it's quite interesting that, um, again, one, one can always sometimes read too much into things. But if one looks at, for example, also the language of Defence Minister Shoigu, who you know, doesn't seem to have been that enthused by the idea, um, you know, there are the people who choose to step away from the extreme rhetoric, who don't decide to double down on that, but instead just try and keep, as, shall I say, as neutral a path as possible. And then there are people who, like Narishkin, are not used to doing that. See, Shoigu is in some ways is quite lucky because he's used to actually just presenting quite sort of factual briefings more than anything else. Narishkin had already been one of the most uh, ardent cheerleaders for Putin. Again, it's one of the sort of ironies, and that's why he gets a stomping. Um, but I think, you know, he probably found it hardest to tread a line between how he was used to, to speaking and how people were used to him speaking and what he was actually thinking. But also, he was probably well aware that he is not one of Putin's close cronies. And I think this is it. He was, he was that sort of nervous precisely because of that, this kind of thing happening. We saw this on TV. And it's worth noting, we saw this on TV because Putin let it go on TV. This was not filmed live or, or shown live. Putin could have chosen to have this bit cut. He could have spared Narishkin his blushes, but no, he allowed the whole world to see it. And I think it's precisely because what was shocking about this Security Council meeting was not so much what we saw, 
But the fact that this implies that this is what happens behind the scenes much, much more broadly. Um, that Putin, frankly, in the model of so many, especially Soviet, but in some ways also modern Russian figures, does tend to be a bully to his subordinates. I mean, I've heard this about people like Mishustin as well. Um, so I think it's, it's more that Narishkin knew he was stepping through a minefield and allowed that to, to strongly occupy his imagination. And then once, it, once things started to go bad, precisely, he in effect panicked. Okay, more seriously, let's talk a little bit about the business of Putin as a caricature of himself and, and quite what that means. Look, as I said, I mean, at first, when I watched that Security Council meeting, I was thinking, dear God, what is going on? Hey, I mean, that was the point where I actually thought, yeah, there's going to be a war. Because previously, and again, I think it's worth acknowledging when, when we get things wrong. I mean, I had thought it was 30 to 40 percent, but, but not. I didn't think it was a certainty or anything like that. Um, but I think... In hindsight, again, it was shocking to, to see this, this rather different, this much more erratic, emotional Putin. But I, I do believe that as we piece things together, as I say later in the coda, this was not that Putin was all of a sudden willing to just throw caution to the winds. This was rather that Putin had convinced himself that Ukraine was just there for the taking and that actually his impatience with, with, with those who didn't, as he saw it, understand that who didn't see as well as him um, the, the the temptation to regard yourself as having some unique olympian position because you are who you are because everyone tells you that you are wonderful and because you get to, to read all these intelligence reports even if those intelligence reports are actually written to flatter your prejudices and assumptions you know is, is a very dangerous and seductive one it's one of the reasons why again we should go back to 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 what Strelkov was saying checks and balances are so important to stop people doing stupid things like this but so actually i i don't think it's so much that that putin was a risk taker it as i said i think it's just simply that he had convinced himself this was not a risk because the irony is if you look at his plan the the plan the strategy for taking ukraine it's a brilliant plan if ukraine was anything like the ukraine of his mind it's just that the gap between these two Ukraines was, was just so stark. Traitors. Now, I've long felt that there was something, I think, particularly compelling about this notion. And after all, it's something that Putin himself articulated originally to Alexei Venediktov of Echo Moskvi. I always said the railway station, but of course I mean the radio station. As was, it should I should add. Well, the idea that basically there are enemies and enemies you fight with, but you hope that someday you'll be able to reach some kind of an agreement with them. And then there are traitors and traitors you can do nothing with, but get rid of them because otherwise they are constantly going to be a threat at your back. And I think this, is, this does help explain a lot of the uh, reasoning behind, as it were, when Putin is willing to use violence and extreme measures. I mean, even if something like, say, the reason for poisoning Navalny. Again, my suspicion is that the tipping point was precisely when they felt that Navalny, knowingly or not, and I think probably thought knowingly, was acting as some kind of fifth column agent for the West rather than an opposition figure. That's what turned him from being an enemy to oppress, to a traitor, to wipe out, and if you can't do it physically, to just basically bury him in the penal system. Well, this is it. The Ukrainians are clearly regarded as traitors. And this is not just conditioning how Putin views them, but it also affects the propaganda and the 
phenomenally toxic nonsense that is being spouted, that has been spouted about the Ukrainians, that in due course played, I think, a key role in prompting the kinds of atrocities that we saw, not just at Bucha and elsewhere. That this has become part of the state's mantra, that the Ukrainians' desire for independence is not just simply inconvenient, it is in fact some kind of betrayal of, of Mother Russia. And I think this is one of the reasons why peace, which I hope will someday be negotiated or otherwise emerge, is going to be just so damn difficult. Because it's not just simply about the political calculations. It is also about the emotional calculations. And the, we, we focus entirely rightly on the Ukrainians' anger, their you know, quite justifiable uh, feelings about the sort of, that something must be done, not just simply to give them back their, their territory, but also to provide some suitable memory to all those who have fallen in defending that territory. But we shouldn't forget the degree, and again, appreciating this does not mean we have to indulge it, but nonetheless, we shouldn't forget the degree to which the Russians' calculations are not going to be purely pragmatic ones of cost and benefit. They're also going to be driven by emotions. And for Putin, I, I think that sense of, of betrayal is, is a deep-rooted one. It's totally muddle-headed, but nonetheless, it, it is a genuine one. And I think that's one of the reasons why, for so many reasons, things will get a lot easier after Putin. And the final point I wanted to raise is about Putin as a cautionary tale. The more I think about it, the more I think that the argument about the fact that, or you know, the, the proposal that the Ukraine war is the West's fault because the nasty West kept expanding NATO, as if somehow NATO expansion had been driven by the West rather than by the desire of so many countries to bring themselves under the umbrella. I mean, that, that is a, a foolish bit of victim blaming. However, we shouldn't exclude the point that there are deeper reasons why Putin is in power and why Putin is how he is. And the West has its share, and I would stress that, its share of the responsibility for that. And a lot of these, frankly, go back to the 1990s, when, frankly, we paid too little attention to Russia, and not just in terms of neglecting Russia expertise and so forth, but also in terms of looking for the quick and easy routes, rather than thinking about the long-term implications. And particularly this relates to our approach to Russian democracy, of all things. In 1993, when Yeltsin shelled his own parliament, the Supreme Soviet, because of a constitutional row, technically at that point, Yeltsin was no longer president. The constitution's very clear on that. But the Supreme Soviet was a, an unpleasant holdover from Soviet times that was uh, unrepresentatively packed with nationalists and communists, and we didn't like them. So we turned a blind eye when Putin shelled that parliament to a ha. Freudian slip there, when Yeltsin shelled that parliament and then rewrote the constitution retrospectively to make it okay. Then in 1996, when it looked like Yeltsin was going to lose to the communists, and basically the, the election was rigged, well, we didn't want the communists to win, so we turned a blind eye to that. And we are surprised that so many Russians, including Russians who wouldn't naturally have been supporters of someone like Putin, think that democracy 
is just a sham, that in fact it is all as managed in, as, as in Russia. Likewise, at the same time, you know, we, we basically did mishandle our, handle, our, our treatment of Russia over NATO expansion. Whether or not there was a deal struck, whether or not there were promises made, is in some ways irrelevant to the fact that Russia clearly believed it had. And in, we shouldn't have just simply said, look, you didn't have anything in writing, there wasn't a promise made. We should have managed that a lot better. Things like the, the NATO-Russia Council were a start, but they, they never really were allowed to get anywhere. You know, broadly speaking, we should have been magnanimous in victory because that's what we were. We were the victors then. We chose not to be. I hope that we will be the victors now, but I hope we will also be magnanimous. And magnanimous doesn't mean turning a blind eye. It doesn't mean allowing people to get away with rigging elections or fighting unpleasant wars in Chechnya or whatever. No, it means actually, if necessary, being open and candid about what, what we think about what's going on, but caring and demonstrating that. We mustn't let short-termism lead us to a position where we have another Putin turning up. Again, it's a point I've been hammering away in, in different ways, whether it's in terms of how we approach the Russian people in an age of sanctions to try and make them under aware of the fact that we have a problem with the Kremlin, we don't have a problem with them, or more broadly. But one way or the other, study of the 1990s, the reasons for the rise of someone like Putin, and also how we handle Putin in the 2000s, are going to be very, very useful once again. And I hope that we can be thinking about them now, so we're ready with serious, proper, well-thought-through, positive policies for a post-Putin era. Because sure, that might be in 10 years' time, but it might be in 10 days' time. And that's why it's worth thinking about it. Soldiers always prepare in advance for con contingencies. Let's hope that for once, politicians and states can too. But anyway, time to climb down off my soapbox. Thank you as ever for listening. And next time, unless there's some particular big news story that I feel I have to tackle, I will probably try and wrap up the last of the various questions that have been sent to me. Thanks very much. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.